Thank you for downloading or streaming this message from Emmanuel Church. We are one church with multiple locations, and we believe God wants to bless you right where you are. In a few moments, you're going to hear some practical teaching from God's Word that I believe will be inspiring and relevant to your life. First, though, if you haven't yet experienced Emmanuel Live, we encourage you to go to our website, eclife.org, to check out our service times and locations so that you can experience Emmanuel in person or through our online campus. If this message blesses you and you'd like to support the ministry financially, again, you can go to eclife.org and click on the Giving tab and choose Online Campus at your campus. Thanks again for joining us today, and we hope this message will be an encouragement to you on your spiritual journey. Man, it is so good to be here with you today. Hey, I just want to give a shout out to everyone right now joining us at our Banta campus, our Franklin campus, our Garfield Park campus. Uh, if you're joining us at the Terra Treatment Center or the New Day Treatment Center, we want to welcome you. And if you're joining us on our online campus, we want to welcome you. Of course, welcome here at the Greenwood campus, out in the lobby. We see you. We feel you. Welcome to everyone. Can, go, can we give it up for our first timers right now all over the place? If this is your first time... Thanks for tuning in. We literally have folks watching all over the United States. I just found out someone's tuning in right now from Las Vegas. Uh, we welcome you. We got folks in Maryland and New York and New Jersey, Arizona, people watching in Texas. We have some families watching in Germany. Got a great note from a family in Germany this week. We want to welcome you. We got friends in Nicaragua and Colombia watching right now. Uh, we just want to welcome everyone right now tuning in from all over the globe. And if you're uh, watching online, just let us know right now in the chat. Where are you tuning in from? We'd love to give you a shout out. Uh, so we're starting a brand new series today. Super excited about that called Mercy. We've never done a series on mercy before. Does anybody know what the word mercy means? Anybody? It's a tough word. It's in the Bible all over the place. I mean, Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5. This is what Jesus said. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is a huge idea in the Bible, but it's hard to kind of define. I remember when I was growing up, uh, I had a real clear definition of what mercy meant. I had two older brothers. And uh, if you're a dude, you know what I'm talking about because dudes like to do this game. It's not even really a game. It's just like a thing. They would like, you know, dudes like to get other dudes in headlocks and, 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 and they like to pin guys down like smaller than them or weaker than them, you know, and, or, or some type of hold like a full Nelson or a headlock or something like that. And then what dudes like to do, ladies, just in case you didn't know, we then we'd like to squeeze really tight and we say, you know, you know, say mercy or another word we used to say is like uncle. I never figured out what uncle meant, but uh, say uncle, you know, and, and you just kind of pin them down. And if they won't say mercy, you keep pressing and you keep pushing to exert your dominance. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about? No, you've never played this game? Ladies? It's a fun game that boys like to play. It's why men die earlier than women, because we like to play these stupid games. Uh, but, you know, the, if you don't say mercy, then the pressure continues. And then sometimes if you have an older brother, they kind of let a, some drool come out of their mouth, maybe some spit. And then, you're, and then now, now you're pinned and you got spit coming down. And then you finally say mercy. And, you know, and then it's all over. And then the old, stronger older brother says, you know, exerts their dominance or whatever, you know. That was my understanding of mercy growing up. How about you? <laughs> It's a tough word to get your brain wrapped around. In one book of the Bible alone, in the book of Psalms, the word mercy appears 147 times in one book. It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. What does the word mean? Well, in the Old Testament, it carries a simple idea. Are you ready? 
kindness. The kindness of God towards man. In the New Testament, same idea, compassion and pity. It's a simple idea that God has revealed his kindness to mankind. There's a great story in the New Testament that captures mercy perfectly. This student of the, of the religious rules and law back then, this Jewish uh, man, comes up to Jesus one day and says, what does a person need to do in order to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what does the law say? The guy shoots back and says, well, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is like, great, go and do that. You'll have eternal life. Well, the guy wasn't satisfied with that. He says, next question, well, who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells him a story to kind of demonstrate who your neighbor is and what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, one day there's this guy walking along the road and he gets beat up and robbed and stripped of his clothes and left for dead. And uh, all of a sudden, this Jewish man is on his way to the temple, this, this pastor sort of guy, and he passes by this man that is bleeding and dying and walks on his way. Another religious man comes along, a, 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 a servant in the temple, and he looks at the man who's dying and bleeding, and he passes by. But then this third guy, the good Samaritan comes along and he sees this man, he's bleeding, he's dying, he's been robbed, he's been stripped of his clothes, and he stops and he looks at him and Jesus says the man has compassion and he gets down on his knee and he bandages up his wounds and picks the guy up and puts him on, the, on his donkey and takes him into town and checks him into the inn and takes care of the guy and then pays his bill and then he says to the, to the owner of the inn, I'm going to come back and I'll pay the rest of his bills that he incurs. And then Jesus says to the man, which one of the three loved his neighbor as himself? And this is what the man said in Luke chapter 10, verse 37. The man replied, the one who showed him, say it with me, mercy. You see, you get the idea of what mercy is? Mercy is compassion. Mercy is kindness. Mercy is pity that results in action. And then Jesus says this to the man. Yes, now go and do the same. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mercy, compassion, kindness. Why do a series on mercy? Well, the answer is super simple in your notes there. We need it. <laughs> we need lots of mercy. You know, every year I read through the Bible, and I'm doing it again this year, and it's my favorite book in the whole world. And, and uh, there's, without question, it's, it's the, the greatest book ever written. It's inspired by God. It's, it's the toughest book I've ever read. Uh, the expectations in this book are incredibly high. There's so much encouragement and hope, but then there's also this, this challenge in the scriptures that comes clear through several different authors. And I want to look at three today. I want to look at Paul, I want to look at Peter, and I want to look at John. All three were very close to Jesus in their own ways. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, listen to what Paul says. We'll start with Paul. He was probably, the, other than Jesus and maybe Peter, the main character of the New Testament. This is what Paul says. Imitate God. He's talking to Christians, talking to people. If you're a person of faith today, he's talking to you. If you're not a person of faith today, we understand that, that, that you're on a journey, and we would love for you to eventually put your faith in Christ, maybe even today. But this is what's in store for you if you do put your faith in Christ. Imitate God. Watch this. In everything that you do. Wow. Can we all do that collectively at all of our campuses and watching online? Can we just go like, wow. Can we do that all together? Let's try it. Wow. Really? 
That's what the book says. The book, you open up the book, the book says, imitate God in everything that you do, in the way you treat your kids, in the way you talk to your spouse, in the way you do your finances, in the way you consume entertainment, in the way you eat food, in the way you handle your sexuality. In everything we do, we're gonna imitate God? Why? Because we're his dear children. And then Paul doesn't stop there. He says, I want you to live a life filled with this thing called agape, this thing called love, following the example of Jesus Christ. He loved us and gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Whoa, that's happy stuff. Do you agree? Like we're supposed to imitate God in everything that we do and live a life filled with the same love that Jesus had in his heart and he gave his life away for people that were sinners. Oh my goodness. I almost feel like I can't do that. You? That's a high calling. Peter says it a different way, same idea, but let me show you what, how he articulates it in the letter of 1 Peter. Peter says, don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your old desires. You didn't know any better back then. In other words, you were a knucklehead. <laughs> Before you met Christ, you didn't understand. But now that you know Christ, listen to what Peter says, you must be holy in everything you do. There's that phrase again. In how you parent your children and how you relate to your spouse and how you handle money and how you do school and how you do your, you know, your, your business and how you handle your life. In everything you do, I want you to be holy just as God who chose you is holy. You must be just like God. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Again, again, can we do a collective, whoa, can we do it like all together? Whoa, that's tough. That's a high calling, do you agree? Let's look at John. John was one of the, the closest disciples to Jesus. In fact, it says that he would lean upon Jesus at dinner time. They were so close, they were best friends. Listen to what John says. He walked with Jesus. Those who say they live in God, those who say that they love God and follow God should live their lives as Jesus did. Really? Just like Jesus, he was perfect. He was 100% patient. The Bible says he was tempted in every way, way, yet without sin. He loved when he should love. He was, he was tough, when he was tough when he needed to be tough. He was merciful. Really? That's a high calling. Have you ever tried to be really good? Like, just like pick a day. Have you ever tried this? Like, today I'm going to be really good. Anybody? Like, today, I'm going to go without sinning. I'm not going to sin one time today, either in thought or deed. Have you ever tried that? That's what the Bible says we should try every day. It says that we should, when you open the book, I hope you open it, I hope you read it. It says that we should live our lives as Jesus did. It says that we should imitate God in everything we do, that we should be holy in everything we do. We should try to be really good, just like Jesus was really good. Do you agree, yes or no? The only problem is when we try that, and I try it all the time because that's what the book says, I fall flat on my face. Anybody else? In fact, the harder I try, I feel like the more I fall. C.S. Lewis said it like this in his fantastic book, Mere Christianity. No man or woman knows how bad he or she is until he or she has tried very hard to be good. Have you ever tried really hard to be good? The harder you try, the more sin that you see, the more pride or lust or selfishness or envy or jealousy. Just try to get rid of envy and jealousy. Just try. 
give it your best shot. You see more of it inside of you. And you realize that there's a huge gap between where you are and where this book says you should try to be. Imitating God, being holy, living your life as Jesus did. There's a gap. Do you you agree with me? There's a gap, yes or no? Are you aware of the gap? Now the gap, man, the gap causes problems in our lives. (laughs) We, We just know it's there. We know we're not like Christ. We know we have all this sin to work through or all this brokenness to work through. And if we're not careful, if we don't handle the gap well, we could have called this series The Gap, How to Handle the Gap, we, we can get real sideways. As the years pile on and we attend church and we hear sermons about what we should do and we realize we're not doing what we should do and the gap is, almost seems to be widening over time, we begin to have feelings like this. I mean, you know, I'm just a complete failure. I'm not a very good Christian. I keep doing the same thing over and over again. I can't seem to get free from this sin in my life. We become discouraged. We become overwhelmed. We become disenchanted, even cynical about the whole thing. We're fine with telling other people that God loves them, God loves you, but secretly behind the scenes, we feel like he, he's, resentment is building in his heart towards us because we keep failing and failing and failing. God must be so disappointed in me. He must be up there just going, "Mm, mm, mm. what are we going to do with her? What a failure. If we don't know how to handle the gap, that's what happens. And I've seen as a pastor now, I've been doing this for 20 plus years now, I've seen three toxic responses to the gap. You tell me if you haven't experienced one of these or wanted to experience or choose one of these different paths. Number one, some people choose to walk away because of the gap. It's like they come to church and they pray to receive the prayer, receive Christ. They pray, to, they pray to receive Jesus as their Savior and they're off to a good start. And then they realize there's a gap between where they are and where they need to be. And they don't know how to close the gap. And they've tried and they've tried and they've listened to sermons and they've heard preachers talk. And they maybe even tried to read the Bible, but they realize they can't do it. So they're gone. And they leave church. And maybe you're watching today from somewhere, I don't know. And this is your first attempt to come back. But you took five years off because you walked away, because it was too hard. I can't do this. I can't live my life as Jesus did. I can't be holy in everything that I do or imitate God in everything that I'm involved in. I just can't do it, so I'm gonna walk away. Other people choose to settle in with the gap. The gap causes them to just kind of sit down and say, you know what, I'm not gonna close this gap. I'm pretty much a terrible Christian. But I'm not going to walk away from the church or faith because where are you going to go? So I'll just come to church. I'll settle in. I'll sit in the seats. I'll listen to the sermons. I'll sing the songs, maybe. And I'll just kind of be okay with being a failure and being a constant disappointment to God, feeling shameful, feeling guilty. And I'll just kind of settle in. This is as good as it gets. And then when someone asks me to join the impact team or someone asks me to join a small group or to help other people on the journey, I'll say no because I stink at this. Like, I'm not very good. So I'll sit in the seats and I'll sing the songs. I might even watch online or whatever. I might even give a little money, but that's as far as I'll go because I can't do this. And we settle in. That's a response I see all too often from many Christ followers. And then this third one, which I think is even more toxic, as we turn to legalism. Some turn to legalism. Now, what is legalism? 
Legalism can be referred to as boundary marker spirituality. What is boundary marker spirituality? John Orberg, in his fantastic book called The Life You've Always Wanted, it's a great read. He kind of studied underneath Dallas Willard, who's my favorite author, one of them. And John Orberg describes boundary marker spirituality or legalism like this. He says, if we are not marked by greater and greater amounts of love and joy, in other words, if we're not becoming like Jesus, we will inevitably look for substitute ways of distinguishing ourselves from those who are not Christians. In other words, if we don't transform from the inside out, and if we don't become like Jesus, we know we're supposed to be different, so what do we do? We just create a list of rules, and then we obey those rules, or at least we try to. And then at least we'll look different from the outside world. At least we'll feel different. What does this look like? Well, every church has a, you know, a different lists that go on. I'll just give you a few examples, okay? So some churches will say, well, we don't listen to rock and roll music. You know, that's bad. So cut the music out. Tattoos, oh no, you do not. Tattoos, earrings, oh no, no, no. This is, now, this is some older stuff, but going back some years, but a lot of churches still have these lists of do's and don'ts. Tattoos, definitely no alcohol. Cigarettes, oh my gosh. Cigarettes, straight to hell. I mean, just, just you, you have, if you smoke cigarettes, that is like at the top of the list, right? Uh, years ago, ladies, if you wore pants, oh my gosh, you were from the devil, okay? So you had to wear a skirt to church. Remember those days, ladies? Anybody grow up in a church like that? It's like you had to wear that skirt. You know, dudes couldn't have long hair, no long hair for the dudes. And, you know, you had all these lists. Why do churches create these lists of what, you know, what you should obey? It's because that's the only thing they can do. They're not transforming from the inside out, so they make a list of rules, and, and, and there's language involved, and there's, uh, uh, you have to dress a certain way. Boundary marker spiritual. It distinguishes you from other people. Our church went through this transformation years ago. Our founding pastor, Jim Devaney, thankfully led us through that, and we've continued to walk through that process of letting go of the list. But years ago, 2005, six, when I was taking over for Pastor Jim, I was, it was a Mother's Day celebration, and I happened to wear a tie and a sports jacket that day. Now, how many have ever seen me in a tie and a sports jacket? <laughs> I've got one. I wear it for funerals and weddings, okay? And so, but I happened to have a tie on that day with a suit tag, and I preached in it for Mother's Day just to honor the moms. And this gentleman walks up to me, and it was in the upper deck up here somewhere. And he says, oh, Pastor, I have been praying for you. I was like, oh, thank you. That's awesome. God has answered my prayers for you. I said, oh, how so? He says, you, you, you have your tie on. <laughs> and you look great. You look like a pastor. And I was like, oh, that, that's what your prayer was? Okay. <laughs> I said, hey, hey you need to pray for something different than that. <laughs> and I'm telling you, church, that was the last day I ever wore a tie in this building, ever. Because it was part of the list. Like, here's what you, you, you know, the dress code, and you put your Sunday best on, all that stuff. Boundary marker spirituality. You know what the toxic, the most toxic results are of legalism? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Because we look different on the outside, we don't go these places, we don't listen to this type of music or watch these type of movies or dress a certain way, but we sure still have anger and bitterness and lust and pride and arrogance and hatred in our hearts, and guess what? The outside world sees the heart. We may look different on the outside, but they know the truth about our hearts, and they label us hypocrites. 
That's the problem with legalism. It doesn't actually change you. Is there another way to manage the gap other than walking away or settling in or turning to rules and legalism? Yes, there is, and that's what this series is all about. It's, it's the way of mercy. It's the way of mercy. It's the path of mercy. You know, one of my jobs as your pastor is to be a theologian. I'm not the best theologian. I'm not going to go, go teach theology in, a, in a, uh, uh, some sort of college uh, scenario. But part of my job is to be a theologian to study the character of God. And so I do that. And, and I understand that, that this you know, part of the journey of my life, that, that God is, is immutable. That's a fancy way of saying he doesn't change. I understand that God is omnipresent. That's a fancy way of saying he's everywhere at all times. If you're a believer, he lives in your heart. He's in this room right now. I understand that he's omniscient, and that, that's a fancy word for saying that he knows everything. I understand he's sovereign, which is a fancy word of talking about how God is in control of all the events that are going on on this earth. I understand that, that God is omnipotent, which is a fancy way of saying that he's all-powerful and there's nothing he can't do. I understand that God is self-existent, unlike us. What does it mean to be self-existent? It means that he's the only being in the universe that doesn't need anything outside of himself to exist. You and I need water, sleep, and food, and other things, right? Not God. I understand that God is eternal, which means he doesn't have a beginning. He never, he's not going to have an end. There's a lot of things about God. He's like a diamond. If you hold him up and you turn, you, you twist, you always see something new and beautiful about God. And he has all these wonderful character traits, his faithfulness, his goodness. But there's one character trait that rises above his omnipresence, above his omnipotence, above his omniscience or eternality or his self-existence or his goodness. You know what it is? It's his mercy. It's the one character trait that defines who he is. Phil Anderson is an author, pastor, and speaker, and I was listening to him talk about this and on a podcast recently, and he said something that was so powerful. I wrote it down. This is what he said. When we talk about mercy, we're talking about the most defining character trait of God. God has a lot of character traits, but the most defining character trait is mercy. In other words, when we talk about mercy, we're climbing into the very center of God's heart. What is he like? He's merciful. The Apostle Paul was writing a letter to a group of Christians in Corinth, and right in the beginning of the letter, I want you to see these words that he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our Watch this, merciful father. He could have said, God is our eternal father. God is our self-existent father. He's our omniscient father, omnipotent father. He's our omnipresent father. No, 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 he doesn't choose any other quality. He says, you wanna know what God is like? He's the father of Jesus Christ and he is a merciful God and he's the source of all comfort. I don't think this is intuitive. I don't think that when we think about God, our natural inclination or our first thought is towards mercy. You know what I think it is? I think it's towards judgment. I think that our first thought, and I agree with Dan Ortland, who wrote this book called Gentle and Lowly. This is a fantastic companion read for this series if you want to pick that up. Gentle and Lowly. I agree with Dane when he says that our first thought about God is often that he's a thundering, gavel-swinging, judgment-seeking, retribution-taking God. Wow. What comes to mind when you think about God? What's the first thought? Is it merciful Father or is it ready to pounce? 
ready to bring judgment, ready to bring down divine wrath from heaven upon my horrible life because I keep failing over and over and over again. What comes to mind when you think about God? Where does Paul get this idea that God at his core is a merciful father or another version says the father of mercies? You know where I think he got it? I think he got it from the book of Exodus. See, Paul was a student. He was a scholar in the Jewish law. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And I think he knew this passage in Exodus chapter 34, which describes this event that Moses had with God. Moses was the, one of the main characters of the Old Testament. He was the guy that led the children of Israel through the Red Sea, out of slavery from Egypt, right? Remember the Exodus, the Red Sea parts, and then it closes on the Egyptians and everybody dies. Makes a great movie. It did become a great movie. We can call him Big Mo, okay? He is the man in the Old Testament, Moses. Well, one day, Moses is like, he's getting ready to take the children of Israel into the promised land. He's like, God, you know, we need you. We need you. We need you every step of the way. You got to go with us. You know, and the children of Israel were all kind of rebellious. And, and so God's like reluctant. He's like, man, I'm not even going to go with you guys. Like, you know, Moses is like, no, you got to come with us. You got to be with us every step of the way. In fact, not only do you have to come with us, you got to reveal to me what you're like what your will is. I want to know what your character is. I need to know your mind. I need to know what you think. I need to know what, what, what kind of person you are. Moses is pleading with God. So, so God's like, okay, okay. You want to know what I'm like? Oh, here's how we're going to make this happen. Because you can't look at me and live. That was kind of a thing in the Old Testament. If you looked at God, you died. So, he's, so, so God says to Moses, because you can't look at me and live, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in a cave you can see out of the cave, but I'm going, to put, I'm going to kind of hide you in a cleft, and I'm going to pass by the cave, and as I pass by, you can kind of look at my backside, because you can't look at my face. And as I pass by, I'm going to tell you who I am, Exodus 34. It's this incredible passage. I think Paul knew this passage by heart. So sure enough, God puts Moses in a cave, and he passes by, and then God tells Moses who he is. Check this out, Exodus 34. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh. The Lord, that's God's name, Yahweh. Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and, say it with me, mercy. The first thing out of God's mouth is, you want to know who I am, Moses? Moses, I am compassionate and I am mercy. That's the core, that's the center of my heart. Most of us would have thought that the first thing God said when he came, when he passed by the cave, if we were in that position, we'd have thought God would say something like this, Yahweh the Lord, disappointed and frustrated, exasperated and angry, and I can't wait to punish you. And it's so sad that that's our inclination. That's, our, that's the first thought that comes to mind when we think about God. Oh, God says, no, you know what I'm like? I'm like compassionate and mercy. And then he continues, slow to anger. I'm not like you guys. <laughs> you get mad at your kids at the drop of a dime. You get mad when you enter into a roundabout and someone doesn't obey the rules. <laughs> You're just so quick. You're so quick to anger, right? I'm not like human beings. I'm very, very slow to anger. It's not that I never get angry. See, God does have a just side. He does get angry. It's just that it takes a lot of provoking. You gotta work on me for a long time with sin before I decide to get angry, God is saying. I'm filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love, watch this, to a thousand generations. <laughs> Think of how many generations that is. If you, if you listed them out, Right? 
I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. See, a lot of us think that, that when we sin, like we're out, we're done, we messed up. We're, you know, gosh, I did it again. And, and God's like, no, 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 here's the thing. When you sin, I, I match up perfectly for you because I'm the one who gives mercy. You blow it, I give mercy. You blow it again, I give mercy. Like we were meant to be together. Do you ever think about God that way? A lot of us think that when we sin, we gotta run. When we sin, we gotta leave. Like God's disappointed, he's frustrated, he's ready to punish, he's ready to throw us out of the family, and God's like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm perfectly designed for you because I have all this reservoir, this built up grace and mercy in my heart that when you blow it, I have exactly what you need, and that's called mercy. And I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Is anybody else thankful today that we serve a God who's compassionate and merciful? He's slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. And then the next thing that God says seems to be contradictory to this. It seems for a moment that God is talking out of both sides of his mouth, but I assure you that he is not, and I will explain why. Watch what the next statement that he says to Moses. However, Moses, Bo, Big Mo, come here, listen, in the cave. <laughs> I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents, parents pay attention, moms, dads, okay? There's a lot on the line here. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and their grandchildren. How interesting. I don't just overlook sin. I don't just sweep it under the carpet. I don't turn a blind eye to it. If you continue to sin and you do not repent and you just push me and push me and push me and push me and push me, I will execute judgment on you. And not just you, on your children and grandchildren. And then, he, and then he says this, the whole family is affected by it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Is your family all jacked up because grandpa had a problem with women? <laughs> you, know, and, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like it goes down and down and down to the third and fourth generation. Whoa. It's like, wait a second, time out. I thought God was merciful and compassionate. I thought that he lavished love upon us. And now the whole family gets messed up. Well, what is God saying here? He's saying, look, I, I, I have, I have a, a, there's this justice side of me. And if you provoke me long enough, there are consequences. There's an effect of unrepented sin. Whatever that is. Materialism, lust. Pride, and it affects the whole family. Now, if you're thinking, well, I'm confused. I thought God was compassionate and mercy. Let, let, me, let me explain how I think he is not contradicting himself. Inside this little jar here, there are four marbles. Last night, there were only three. Now there's four. <laughs> this represents four generations. The kids, the grandkids, the great-grandkids, and the great-great-grandkids. That's how far God's judgment goes down. Does that make sense? Four generations. Now, if we go back to the verse above that, it says, but I lavish unfailing love and mercy to a thousand generations. There are a thousand marbles in this jar, and it is pretty darn heavy. In fact, I think you could do, no, I'm not going to try. A thousand generations so here's a picture of God's mercy 
And here is a picture of God's justice and his wrath. Do they even compare? I mean, think about Look at that. So God is not saying, well, I'm really a wrathful judge. You know, rel- you know I- I'm after retribution. I'm after, you know, punishment. No. He's like, this is the last thing I want to do. And if even when I do it, it's only going to last three or four generations. But, but this is my character. This is what I'm really like. My heart is merciful and kind. Please never forget this image right here. These do not compare. I had to put it down. It was too heavy. <laughs> That's God. He is the father of mercies. What does this mean for you? Well, it could change everything. It's changed my life. There's a great quote by A.W. Tozer, who is a pastor, a prolific writer and pastor in the 1940s. And he said, were we to extract from any person what comes to mind when they think about God, you could predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. What does that mean? It means if, if I could so- somehow pull out of your brain, out of your heart, what you think about God, whatever that thought is, is he judgmental? Is he ready to pounce? Is he, is he bent on retribution? Or is he merciful and loving? Whatever, whatever comes out, like what you think about him determines your spiritual future. See, if God is a retribution-seeking, judgment-relishing, gavel-swinging, thundering God ready to pounce on you when you blow it, you're probably going to walk away from Christianity in the church. You're probably going to settle into a life of shame and guilt and defeat, or you're going to turn to legalism with the gap. Remember the gap? But if you take the path of mercy, if you understand that God, that God is, 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 is standing here ready to, to show his love. And, and you, know, you know, the Bible never says one time that God needs to be provoked to love. It says many times that he's provoked to anger. But not one time does he need to be shoved or pushed to show mercy. No, instead he says, I lavish it. It's coming out of me, like the very center of my being is mercy. It's the thing that comes out the easiest. You, all you have to do is give me a little shove, and, you, and what gushes out of me is forgiveness and grace and mercy. That's God. Now, if you had that perception of God, you know what happens? You stay the course. You stay the course. You hang in there when you blow it. Every time you mess up, you go back to Jesus and say, I confess my sins. I was prideful. I was lustful. I, 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 I lied. Uh, I, I, I was uh, mean-spirited. I was hateful. I, I said something that was inappropriate. And I apologize. And I'm sorry. And I throw myself upon your mercy, which is new every morning. And, and, and you get back up every single time. And you get back up again and again and again. And you never give up. So you, you keep moving forward. And over time, here's what happens, ready? The path of mercy leads to transformation. The path of mercy leads to a changed life. The path of mercy allows you the space and the time to develop the character of Christ in your life. Because you stayed the course and you never gave up. You didn't walk away, you didn't settle in, and you didn't turn to legalism. It's the story of my life, because as a pastor, you gotta kinda live holy, and 
you have to live your life as Jesus did and you have to imitate God. I'm sort of like a, a professional Christian. Isn't that terrible to say? To put it that way? So when I blow it, when I sin, it's like, oh, it's bad. Because I'm not supposed to be as a pastor, like as a Christian, yes, but as a pastor. So if I didn't take this approach, if I didn't take the path of mercy, I'd be done, done. I'd walk away, I'd, I'd live in shame, I'd live in guilt, I'd turn to legalism, hypocrisy, the whole nine yards. I can't take that path and neither can you. This is a marathon, this is not a sprint. The Bible says when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. Anybody excited about that? Anybody thankful for that? There is mercy available for you. As we wrap up today, you know, Easter is right around the corner. We're gonna celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ. It's the Super Bowl of Christianity, Easter Sunday morning. If the cross is not a picture of mercy, I don't know what it's a picture of. You see, here's the reality of your situation and my situation. We're born into this world sinners. Sin was handed down from our ancestors, Adam and Eve. We're born into this world broken and sinful. On top of that, we could not fix our own situation. So God, in his mercy, reaches out to us. What is mercy? Compassion, pity, that leads to action. What action did God the Father take? He sent Christ to this earth to do for us, for us what we could not do for ourselves. We could not redeem ourselves. We could not get rid of our own sin. We could not make ourselves right with God. There's nothing in our power that we can do to reconcile ourselves with God the Father. So he sends Christ on our behalf. Jesus dies in our place, takes the penalty for our sin, pays the debt that we owed. And he rises again the third day to wash away our sin, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Have you received his mercy? I'm not asking you to, to, to become part of a church or part of a religion. I'm asking you, have you responded to God's love, his pity, his compassion for you? I did when I was 17, changed my life. I was like, look, if you love me that much that you die on the cross for my sin, <laughs> that you would reach out to me and throw a life preserver out to me so I can grab a hold and save my life, like I'm, 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 I'm a goner. If you love me that much, I'll respond to you with love. How about you? I'm gonna say a simple prayer. It's a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of confidence. It's a prayer of you reaching out to Christ. It's a prayer of repentance, turning from living for yourself to living for God. Take these words and make them your own. Respond to God's mercy today and trust him. It's a prayer he loves to answer. Just say this. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the mercy that you have demonstrated in your son. Jesus, thank you for dying in my place, taking the penalty for my sin, doing for me what I could not do for myself. I trust you today. Be my savior. Cleanse me from my sin. Fill my heart with your spirit. I believe in you, that you died and three days later you rose again to forgive my sin and make me your child. I trust you today. And from this day forward, 
as I try to become like you, Jesus, and trip and fall and sin and mess up. Help me to take the path of mercy, to throw myself upon your grace and the deep reservoir of love that's in your heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Can we give God glory, church, amen? Come on, nice and loud. All of our campuses online, wherever you are. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, we have put together a little gift for you. We call it our save box. Inside of this box, there is a Bible to kind of get you started. There's some instructions about how to get connected to the church. There's also a coffee cup in here to say congratulations. If you are at Banta, Franklin, Garfield Park here at Greenwood, text the word SAVE to 65248, and then you can go right to the information booth out in the lobby, and you can pick one of these up today. You do not have to wait for it in the mail. If you did pray that prayer and you're somewhere else in the country or around the world, text this word SAVE to 65248, and we will send one of these to you in the mail to help you get started. One more time, church. Can we give God glory? Amen. Do not forget, do not forget, this Wednesday night, we want to pack this place out. We're going to have worship night. Prepare to have your face blown off with some worship music. It's going to be phenomenal. Will you pray with me? And then we'll hand things off to the local teams. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your mercy. You overwhelm us with your unfailing love. You are exactly who we need. We fail, we fall, we trip, we sin, we blow it. But every single time, if we turn to you, you are there waiting to pick us up, to wipe us off, to cleanse us and get us back on the right road. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys right now. I'm gonna hand things off to the local teams. We'll see you next week.